Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Thomas Lavallee, the Chief Operating Officer of Alliance Health Management Services. As the Chief Operating Officer of Alliance Health Management Services, Tom oversees four skilled nursing facilities that provide both short-term rehabilitation and long-term care. In his role, Tom is charged with both running the day-to-day operations of the organization as well as exploring growth opportunities. In this podcast, we talk about Tom's 25-year journey in skilled nursing and long-term care and discuss the future of both the industry and his organization. I really enjoyed my conversation with Tom because he gives a view of the competitive nature of long-term care and how health reform is impacting the industry. He makes a compelling argument for early careerists to consider the field of long-term care. I have produced two versions of this podcast, an extended version that includes our complete conversation and an abridged version. You are listening to the extended version. If you'd like to listen to the abridged version, please see our website. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Thanks for listening. And here is Tom LaValle. Welcome to The Forge, Tom. Thank you. Uh, you went to Worcester State College in Worcester, Mass. What brought you to Worcester State, and, and what did you study there? So I, re- I started college at UMass Amherst and realized fairly early on that it wasn't a terrific fit. However, I wanted to continue to give it a go there. And somewhere along the line, after three semesters, my parents got divorced, and I needed to come up with a more reasonable option in terms of cost for college. I had some friends at Worcester State. I gave it a look-see and it was certainly affordable. I had to pay my own way through college and I could make that work. Yeah. And it was a, I, I commuted. I didn't, I didn't live there. But I enjoyed the experience and it's worked out great. I studied psychology there. Okay. Not really knowing what I was going to do with that degree. I just enjoyed the the coursework and so that's what I focused on. All right. So you, you graduated from Worcester State and it looks like around the time you graduated maybe you, you started working at Southern Worcester County Rehabilitation Center? Is I that, did. Right? I did. That was my first job out of college and it was a, a terrific job. I got to work with folks that had intellectual disabilities first at a, in an independent apartment setting where I would go in at night, take them grocery shopping, balance their checkbook. It was incredibly rewarding. It didn't pay a lot, but I, I enjoyed the work. And eventually, I began writing behavior management programs for that same population. For the same company? as for the, Yes, for the same company. So it was a an advancement, a promotion, if you will, and uh, I enjoyed doing that a great deal as well. It was a little less hands-on than working with the folks uh, directly in the apartment setting. So you were called a caseworker initially? I was, and then, a, and then a behavior specialist. Okay. And this is kind of long-term care. Well, it's it's it was something else. It was something else. It okay. was it was it was independent living in apartments, 
fully subsidized by uh, MassHealth. But these folks could do a fair amount for themselves. They weren't supervised 24 hours, seven days a week. It was limited supervision, whereas you know, long-term care is 24 hours, seven okay. days a week of, of oversight. Do you consider this part of like the spectrum of long-term care, you think? No, I think it, it's, it's, it's really opposite. It's, it, it's a different thing. Okay. It, it was a different thing. It was not a healthcare model at all. Okay. Uh, so there wasn't any, you know, if somebody got sick or needed attention, they were sent to the emergency room. So there weren't, weren't any clinical folks involved with this, with this particular program. Okay. So you left Southern Worcester in 1991 to go to Liberty Commons of Chatham where you took on a job as a social worker. Uh, what kind of organization was Liberty Commons? So Liberty Commons was a 132-bed skilled nursing facility located in a beautiful section of Cape Cod down in Chatham. And the, the, the path that got me there is kind of interesting as well. I mentioned early on that my parents broke up while I was in college. My mom moved down to the Cape. She was a director of nursing. And at Liberty, or at Liberty Commons. Oh, very nice. Okay. And so she, she, we had been a little bit apart while I was finishing, you know, school, and she had moved down to the Cape. Uh, she called me one day and said, "What's your degree in?" And I said, "It's in psychology. I got a, like a psychology degree." She said, "Well, would you be interested in being a social worker in our nursing home? There's a vacancy." And I gave it some thought, and I said, "Boy, I could move to the Cape, reconnect with mom." make some more money because it would, you know, it was better pay. So I gave it a shot and I went down and I never left. Yeah. Uh, so at the time I was living in a small town near Worcester called Northbridge, Mass. Um, I moved down to the Cape in 1991 at the age of 25 and haven't, uh, haven't looked back since. What does it mean to be a social worker? I mean, you didn't, your degree was in psychology. So it was. You weren't, you weren't a social work major. Right. So I had to, I had to sit for the LSWA exam which I didn't qualify for right away. I needed to have oversight by a master's level social worker. And so the company paid for that oversight. I shortly after, I think it was six months or so, got my LSWA. And what is that? And so that's a licensed social work associate, which allows you to uh, write care plans, counsel families who are, you know, it's, it's a difficult process uh, when folks get admitted to a nursing home, and it's, it's often harder on the family than it is the patient. But it allowed me to, you know, interact with those folks, counsel with them, talk with them, listen to their issues and concerns, and try to resolve them, all under the direction or supervision, if you will, of, a, of, a MS, of an MSW. So as an associate, are you always supervised by an MSW? Correct. And, and at least in the skilled nursing facility, uh, sector. I couldn't speak to other areas of, of social work, but certainly within a skilled nursing facility, they require oversight. So as a, as a LSWA, you are writing care plans as people are admitted. What, what kind of, what are, you, what are you actually doing? What, is that, what so, does that mean? So a care plan is developed for uh, each patient when they're admitted to a nursing facility, and it's a multidisciplinary care plan. Uh, each discipline, nursing, rehab, social services, dietary, they all have their section to be that they're responsible for. And as a social worker, often my section included uh, discharge planning. Are these folks going to stay long term or are we going to be sending them back to the community? Included things like preference and for visitation. So all sorts of the social 
aspect of the individual stay at the facility was what I was responsible for. Now, back when I was a social worker, it was there wasn't a lot of discharge planning. Most people came to the nursing facility, and that was it. They weren't going home. Okay. Uh, so the so the other responsibilities that I had included ordering clothing for folks that didn't have family support to do so, working with them on some finances if they had a personal needs account and they wanted some spending money. So it, it wasn't like social services are today in skilled nursing facilities. It's a much more dynamic profession. It's, it's evolved a great deal over time. How much were you involved in the day-to-day life of, of the residents in, in that role? The need, that, that was the neatest thing. And it goes sort of back to when I was working with folks with intellectual disabilities in their apartments. The, the greatest thing about it was the interaction with the client. Um, so as a social worker, I spent a great deal of time just talking to residents, getting to know them. I organized the men's club, uh, brought them to a Red Sox game. It was a terrific, terrific job. We didn't send people home, as I said back then. Uh, people died there. So the, uh, the, the end of life stuff was difficult, and I don't, I don't think I excelled at that uh, for sure. That, those were tough things to handle. Yeah. How did, um, so that's an interesting point, right? You, you dealing in, in long-term care, you do deal a lot with end-of-life stuff. How, how did you come to deal with that? You must have, you've seen that throughout your career now. Yeah, I have, and I'm removed from it now. But when I was a social worker and then administrator, I handled, you know, I handled that stuff uh, quite a bit. Getting to know the patients as a social worker, it was hard. Uh, but we had a lot of support. Our facility and all facilities have contracts with hospice agencies who provide a great deal of, of service, both spiritual, uh, some guidance, bereavement counseling if, if necessary. So that always helped. And I, I certainly leaned on them when I was a social worker. But yeah, the tough times. And often, uh, because our, our business results in somebody passing away, it can be tough with families who have expectations that aren't probably, aren't sometimes in line with what's going on medically with their loved one. Uh, so those conversations can be very difficult. Uh, but I think I handled them pretty well. Yeah. And, and, you know, as hard as it was, I enjoyed making folks feel better when I could. Yeah. Well, it seems like you were successful because after less than two years, you were promoted to the Director of Resident Services. What was, what was that position? So I oversaw the Social Service Department and the Admissions Department. And it really, I think, was a key step in my career. It gave me exposure to the business side of nursing facility operations that I hadn't been exposed to prior. Yeah, I had to, you know, I got to know how it all came together in terms of private pay versus Medicare versus Medicaid, how that all fit together. You know, quite frankly, what kind of clients were better to pursue than others from a financial standpoint. Getting to know, you know, some of the asset issues that families deal with when coming into a nursing facility. Very few folks come in with long-term care policies. Mm-hmm. Most are admitted, even back when I was the uh, director of resident services, most were admitted directly from the hospital following a three-day stay, qualifying for Medicare benefits. And that was usually the, uh, and continues to be, the method by which people come into our facilities. And then you've got to figure out, okay, if they're going to stay long-term, who's paying for this? Do they qualify for Medicaid? If so, who's going to help with the application? And so this really enabled me to sort of 
uh, case manage each of the uh, admissions that came into our facility and it really was a jump start for me to take off in the, uh, with my career. Okay. So you realized at that point maybe you liked the business side of, of, of the care. <sighs> yeah. I, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was, I thought it was very interesting. I also knew that if I continued to grow, that it would be good for my career uh, financially. And it, yeah, it was pretty early on that I said to myself, I think I can run one of these nursing facilities. And I focused my attention in that, in that regard. So along those lines, fairly soon after you started the role as the Director of Resident Services, you began your administrator and training program also at Liberty. Absolutely. So what is that for people not familiar? Sure. So you've got two paths to become a licensed nursing home administrator in Massachusetts. You can either hold a master's degree, which I didn't have at the time, or you can complete a six-month administrator and training program. And, and then either one of those two things can allow you to sit for the nursing home administrator's test and, uh, and get your license. I didn't have my master's degree. The administrator of the facility identified me as somebody that he thought he'd like to invest in. And he, be, he offered to be my preceptor. And to be a preceptor in Massachusetts, you have to have at least five years of experience as a licensed nursing home administrator, which he had. So we got together and developed this administrator and training program focusing on all areas of uh, nursing home operations. So there was a section that I needed to spend time with nursing, time with the dietary department, time with the business office. We put this plan together, you send it into the state, and they either approve it or, or say, no, this isn't adequate. And they approved mine, and uh, we took off from there. Spent six months training and really learning all aspects of nursing facility operations. It was great. It was a great experience. And then I was able to sit for my exam. Is there a standard length of time that this is? Six months. Six months is the minimum? In, in Six mass? months okay. is the minimum in mass. Okay. So you finished, you finished your AIT, as we refer to it. Yep. And, um, and you were promoted immediately to administrator. So the plan was, once I got my license, the owner of the company was going to give me a shot running Liberty Commons. And I said, great. <laughs> and yeah, it worked out that I passed my exam first try through. Back then, you took your exam and you waited several weeks to get the results. Now, you go, you take the exam and you get your results in real time. So I had to suffer two or three weeks waiting for the results to come back. Matter of fact, I went on my honeymoon came back and my license was sitting in the mailbox. Nice. So That's it was, nice it was a great nice. return. Yeah. Great honeymoon, great return. <laughs> so you, you, you got licensed and, and the owner said, I'm going to give you a shot. So what does it mean to be an administrator of, of a facility? Boy, nothing prepares you to take the helm of a nursing facility you just have to do it. The training was great, and, and I think my preceptor was wonderful and really took the time to, to show me and, you know, the right way of doing things. But until you're sitting in the seat, it's, it's a hard thing to, to really explain. There's nothing more terrifying than your first Department of Public Health annual survey. 
because now everything falls on you. It's your report card for the year. It's, it's very challenging. I was very anxious, but got through it. And I, I would say that that's the most difficult, that was the most difficult transition to actually be the responsible individual for the outcomes of the facility. Uh, you're the go-to person, and I, you know, I had a lot of that responsibility as both the social worker and director of resident services, but this really upped the ante. Yeah, yeah. So if something goes wrong, it's it, it lands at your desk. Yeah, and and the other thing is to be, you're responsible for at the time we had 120 or so employees. You're responsible to make sure that this operation is successful. Their jobs are counting on it, and so yeah, the responsibility is intense, and it's a business that doesn't shut the lights off. It's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week business. It's not uncommon to get calls well after hours. It's not uncommon to get calls during the weekend. And some of those can be very you know, challenging phone calls. A, a patient elopes, you know, leaves the facility in the, in the middle of the night, and the nursing staff can't find him or her. I've had those phone calls, tough stuff. So it's, it's a huge responsibility. You've now gone from being a supervisor to being a manager where you're supervising sections and supervisors. Right. What's that tra- what was that transition like for you? So to be focused on one department uh, or a small subset of the facility, um, that was fun. But to, but to be the, the individual in charge of the, whole, uh, the entire operation, again, it's... it's there, there's some anxious moments. It's a huge responsibility, but it's incredibly rewarding and fulfilling when you have success and you know that you're the one who is, you know, making the moves to 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 gain that success. For instance, my first survey, annual Department of Public Health survey, went okay. My second one, we were deficiency free, and my mother was the director of nursing still at the time that I was the administrator. So your mother's one of your employees now? Was one of my employees. Oh, and interesting. We, yes, we did that together for three or four years, and it was tough stuff. But again, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have traded that time in my life for anything. But to, to answer your question, to go from managing a small group of people to suddenly being in charge of the entire operation, it's a, it's a significant change. What's the most challenging part of it? of managing a facility? I think, well, I think that staff staff and staffing are two immensely challenging, two, two big challenges that we have in our industry. And, it's, and it was tough back then and it's tough now. What makes it challenging? So a, a couple of different things. One, uh, back when I first got my license, unionization was a, a big issue on Cape Cod. There were, there were a few union facilities. We were union free. We endeavored to stay that way. Uh, we can get into that if you'd like, but we endeavored to stay that way. And it was a challenge. The union was very aggressive back then. We had a tough time finding staff. Cape Cod is not full with affordable housing. Right. It's expensive to live there. Very expensive. And so to, to, to pay folks you know, a little above minimum wage to do CNA work, where they could work at a stop and shop, you know, that was it. So that was tough. It was hard to find good quality staff and to retain them. So I think that was, I think, and remains one of the biggest challenges of our industry, in our industry. 
what would you say is your was your steepest learning curve making the jump to the administrator? I was not the strongest in terms of the financial piece. Developing budgets, understanding the complexities of how a Medicaid rate is developed, putting all those pieces together to get to a bottom line that makes sense. Now I had a lot of help in getting there, but I think that was my biggest challenge is to figure that out. I was great with the people, my background in working with people and and, and helping people solve issues, that was not an issue at all. The personnel stuff I handled very well, but learning the financial, how, how, how the budget came together and how you actually make money in this business, that was my biggest challenge. You were the administrator for Liberty for about five years and then in 1999 you left Liberty and you made kind of a couple of quick changes going from Warren Manor Extended Care right. to Cape Regency Rehabilitation and Nursing Center as the administrator of both of those organizations. Uh, you were then promoted to be the Vice President of Operations for Oakwood Living Centers of Massachusetts, which was the parent uh, organization of Cape Regency. How were those transitions? And then how did you come to be the Vice President of, of uh, Operations? Uh, great, so great questions. and. I left Liberty because I had been there for nine years. My mom was still employed, although in a different capacity. We actually, uh, while I was there, developed and opened an assisted living facility, and my mom became the executive director. So we had some separation, which was good, but it was still the same organization. Were you in I, charge of both? or no, no, just the skilled so, nursing facility. So it, 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 it just... I looked at the operation and I loved it, but I said, I'm not going anywhere. I could stay here for the rest of my career. I just thought I had more to offer. I wanted to, I wanted to break away from where I learned the trade and wanted to see if I could you know, duplicate that in another facility. So I chose, and at Liberty Commons, I had a lot of support. The ownership, you know, they were there on a, on a day-to-day basis. So I, I, had, I had a ton of support. I chose an organization in Bourne Manor, uh, which is a great not-for-profit organization, but they, they're really hands-off in terms of their style with administrators, and it didn't fit me. I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't, I don't think, ready, to be honest, to take that jump and not have support. And different nursing facility organizations do things differently. There are some that provide a lot of support, uh, to administrators and to the facility in general, and there are others that are hands off and say, "Here are the keys. You run it uh, and figure it out." And I just wasn't ready for that, and that's what Born Manor was. So when the opportunity came for me to go to Cape Regency, I had the sense that there would be a lot of support. The operations manager for the entire organization also lived on Cape Cod, was a frequent, you know, visited frequently, and so I knew there'd be that support, and I said, I want to give that a go. So I did, and we were very successful there. And in a short period of time, the my operations director uh, left the organization, position became vacant, and the ownership of this company, Oakwood Living Centers, approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in that position, uh, and I said yes immediately. This was the growth opportunity yeah. that I was looking for. And we had operations in Massachusetts and in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I was 
you know, looking back on it, probably uh, a little young to be doing uh, this level of work. Um, but we, we did some good things. And ultimately, I was able to be a part of the deal that moved Oakwood to Radius. And things really took off for me from there. Let me let me pause you and back up for a sure. second. Sure. You said you mentioned that the ownership of Liberty was often on site. So I'm so, so that sounds to me like maybe it was a family owned facility. It was. So it's for profit then. The for profit, family owned, one majority owner and then one individual who had a small piece of it, and both of them were intimately involved with the operation. And that was a pretty common model up until relatively recently. It it, it's, it certainly was. There are very few family-owned and operated single entities in existence now. Um, they've been bought up by the bigger chains. So you moved from, from a family-owned entity that was, as you mentioned, had an intimate connection with, you had an intimate connection with the owner on a day-to-day basis right. to a not-for-profit, in which case, so now you're, you don't have a owner per se. You have right. A, was, was born part of a multi, uh, multi-facility system? or was Yes, it? system called Berkshire Healthcare Systems, which is still in existence today. And they've got facilities throughout Massachusetts. And I think they've got one in Pennsylvania as well. And yeah, it was a not, not-for-profit organization, still is. How was that different, working for not-for-profit versus versus uh, uh, well the, the, the closeness of supervision? Was there were there other things that were different about it? So, not-for-profits have a board of directors as opposed to ownership. As the administrator, however, I did not have any dealings with the board. I simply reported to uh, my supervisor, the CEO of the company, and that's who my relationship was with. But it felt different. I can tell you, it, it definitely felt different. And you know, I'm in a not-for-profit now. When we get to that, I can yeah, I can explain absolutely. in more detail sure. how it all fits. Sure. So you moved from as you as we were talking, you moved to uh, Oakwood, and you moved up to the operations director. Now, was Oakwood a for-profit organization, or they were they were a for-profit, interesting organization. You know, relatively small. You know, we had, I think, uh, six, five or six facilities in Massachusetts, one in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Each one of them, its own corporation. Okay. And that's done for protection of the ownership group. And, and unfortunately, financially, we were, we were in trouble prior to me taking over as VP of operations and ultimately. The whole organization. The whole organization okay. was. And unfortunately, we had to file, uh, file for bankruptcy. Oh. Interesting process um, to go through. It was. It was not something I ever want to do again. Yeah, imagine. What was that like? Well, uh, and what does that mean? So, for folks that are know, um, most people know that word, but I don't think most people know what that means. Sure. Uh, so, to simplify it, what it meant was all of the outstanding debt at the time that the bankruptcy was approved sort of went away. And the, the slate was cleaned. Now, in doing so, you, you hurt people. And I had friends, for instance, our medical director, who continues to be my primary physician to this day, didn't get paid several months of his monthly stipend. He's a small, independent practitioner, and that hurt. 
some of the bigger organizations who we had stretched out to 120 days or so in, in accounts payable lost a significant amount of money. And although they're big organizations and many of them could absorb it, you know, my account representative, who I've developed a relationship with, you know, they, they're not happy about it. And, and I get that. I certainly do. So when you say debts, I, I suspect a lot of people kind of jump to or mortgages and things like that. But what you're actually saying is bills. Correct. Like, Correct. Like the physician that had been providing care is the now physician. not going to get paid. The me- exactly. The pharmacy that, that provides medications to the facility, the medical supply company, the food supply company, all of those folks got hurt uh, when we filed. And did this? Did you file while you were the operations director, or while you were at the? While I was the operations director, we knew it was coming, okay. and it was part of the deal that I accepted that this was going to happen. So you knew that going into the. I did, role. I did, but I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. I know now, as I said earlier, your responsibility to employees is is tremendous, and the fact that we were able to salvage the facility not have to close it, uh, any of the facilities, uh, not have to close any of them, to be able to transfer the company to a, a successful organization in radius. So, uh, you know, ultimately everything worked out. So was that actually part of the bankruptcy process? Was, was the, the, the homes in, I believe it was the homes in Massachusetts were transferred to radius? That's correct. We were ordered via the outcome of the bankruptcy decision to hire a local management company to oversee us. The, the ownership group and all the offices, with the exception of me, were located in uh, Carmel, Indiana. And so it, it made the whole thing even more difficult. So that's where Radius came in. Yes, we, we, identi- we, we met with a handful of different uh, nursing facility organizations in Massachusetts and ultimately selected Radius. So the ownership of the facilities, what happened with, with that? So they wanted to buy back the buildings. The buildings. The, the operations, the, the buildings, operation. the whole thing. They wanted to buy them back. Um, I knew the owners you know, well. That was their intention. When Radius came on the scene, Radius identified the buildings and the operations as something that they wanted to own. And here I was in the middle okay. of my prior ownership group who treated me very well and this new entity, Radius. And I really had to make a decision who I was going to support and back. And I'm, I played my cards right because I chose the ultimate winners who their bid on the facilities was higher than the former owners of Oakwood. And so Radius was awarded ownership of, of the facilities. So this is an interesting an interesting process you're describing. So there were five facilities in Mass Correct. and one in Virginia. Correct. You filed for bankruptcy in Massachusetts? Correct. And so at that point, you're, you were saying that the original owners of, uh, of, uh, of Oakwood, of, uh, the Oakwood owners, wanted to buy the facility back. So what does that... So somewhere in the process, they lost title to the facilities? So... The bank that held the note on the properties uh-huh. said, we're going to get our money or a good portion of it one way or the other. Okay. 
and they were the ones who really forced the management to a local company in Massachusetts. And when it came time to buy the buildings, to assume as much of the debt as possible, Radius ultimately bid more than the former o- owners of Oakwood. So the, in this process, the debt holders essentially took title Correct. of the facilities. Correct. You got so, it. Okay. So as part of the bankruptcy process, the, the, banks, the bank that had loaned the money to Oakwood now became the default owner. That's right. And then Oakwood, the, the Oakwood owners in Indiana had said, hey, we'd like to buy it back. And so who kind of, who is in charge of that process of, of negotiating who actually gets to buy the, the I, facilities? I, I believe, and I wasn't, yeah, so I wasn't involved on the ultimate decision. My understanding was the the bank that held the the mortgage was really the decision makers. Okay. Inter- what a ver- very interesting, an interesting story. So you're, you continued in your role managing the facilities during this whole process? I did. So, and then when ultimately Radius took over as managers, so prior to them even being owners, they allowed me to continue to manage the Oakwood portfolio, if you will, the five facilities that were originally Oakwood facilities. So I got to continue to, to, to oversee them. And I jumped into an organization that was a little bit bigger than Oakwood at the time. Radius had, I think, seven facilities. So we were up to 13. I got six, and there was another operations manager who oversaw the other ones. Were all these in Massachusetts? Was Radius a a mass? Radius originally was Massachusetts. Eventually, we got into Rhode Island, but at this time, we were strictly in Massachusetts. So backing up again, because I'm really interesting about the the, um, bankruptcy, but so you made the step. Into being an operate into operations and managing multiple facilities. Right. What was that like for you? It was great. Yeah. And I knew very early on, once I got into multi-facility operations, that I never wanted to run a single entity again. It, it's it's interesting, Mark. It almost became it. The pressure was all. It, the pressure seemed less. Really. If 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 that's if that's possible, because each facility had its own administrator. We call them executive directors. They had their own executive directors who were responsible for the day-to-day. And as a multi-facilities operations individual, you're responsible to sort of bring it all together, you know, keep them on point and on task. But they've really got to deliver uh, on, a, on a day-to-day basis, not you as the multi-facility operations manager. So did they all report to you? Did all the executive directors report to you? They did. Okay. So what, how did you go about managing five facilities? And I'm assuming they're not all in the same town. They're, they're no, the, the, that, that's when I began to put a lot of miles on my, on my vehicles. Okay. Uh, and I say vehicles because I generally have to get another one every couple of years, unfortunately. I travel quite a bit. It, it really, I, I figured it out on my own. There's not, I didn't have any training in terms of how to be uh, an operator of multi, uh, of, of several facilities. I, I, I figured it out and I, you know, the first thing that, that I wanted to do and I ultimately ended up doing was really getting to know the executive directors as well as I possibly could. What, it, how do our, are our styles going to jive? Are we going to be able to work together? I'm a very hands-on person. I, as an administrator, I, I knew my staff, I knew the residents, I knew my families and I expected the same 
of the executive directors that reported to me. And it wasn't always the case that they were that way. There are two styles, I think, of nursing home administrators, executive directors. Some that stay in their office and are very focused on the paper. And with, with all that we've got to do today, you could easily spend your whole day in your office if you wanted to. The other type, the one that I'm more comfortable with, is the individual that does their paperwork, gets what needs to be done in the office, and is out on the floors interacting with staff, interacting with families, getting to know uh, their patients. Those folks, in my experience, are far more successful. Why is that? It's a people business. You have to have a passion for this line of work. As we spoke about earlier, not all the outcomes are fantastic. People die. Families get upset with you. You don't hit a home run every day. You've got to manage people with all sorts of challenges. I mean, our, our industry has got is predominantly a female workforce, and many of those folks are single moms. It's, it's tough stuff, and so you have to have a passion for it, and, and so that means getting to know people, uh, caring about their day-to-day -day life, and being supportive, and I, you can't do that in an office eight hours a day. When did you know you were really committed to long-term care? So I think probably six months into uh, being a social worker at Liberty Commons, I loved everything about it. I, I saw a future for me. Um, you know, it's uh, even back then, everyone talked about an aging population and that this business sector is going to be an important player for years to come. And it's even, it's even more the case now. So for the young folks uh, that are listening to this, I can tell you that the baby boomers are coming of age and, you know, the demographics of folks 65 years and, old, and older is going to grow by 80% over the next five years or some crazy number like that. So the need for this segment was there then, is there now. I loved everything about it very early on. So you were uh, the regional director of operations for Radius Correct. from 2003 to 2009. And I was going to ask you, how did you make the decision to come to Radius? But it sounds like it was kind of pushed upon you. Well, I had a like I said, I had a choice. I could have stayed with the guys from Oakwood and, okay. and maybe done a different venture. Okay. But I, I believed in the Radius folks early on. They had the same, even though they had multi, you know, they had several facilities, they operated them like they were a single entity. It felt more like Liberty Commons okay than some of my other stops so did they not have separate corporate entities at each facility or what was it that made it feel more like it was just one entity the owner was hands on and the folks that reported to her directly were very hands on as well it it, it was a large it was a larger company than oakwood but it just felt i i, I don't know why but it just felt more like family Okay. So uh, the culture matched your personality. It did. And high expectations. The owner, the two owners of, of, of Radius, the two primary owners, there were several small percentage owners, but the two primary owners were very hands-on, very passionate about the business, and tough. And had it set high expectations for me and everybody else that worked for them. And, and I, I enjoyed that. What kind of facilities did Radius operate? Were they all skilled nursing? Did you have some assisted living mixed in there? So uh, they were all skilled nursing when I initially joined the company. 
And then five or six years into working for them, we developed an assisted living um, that I oversaw. I oversaw all aspects of the development from design concept to construction to getting the place filled up. I was I was put in charge of that process. So we did end up with one small boutique assisted living facility. What's the process of bringing a new organization into existence like? What, what's um, uniquely challenging about it? What's, what was interesting about it to you? So I've had the pleasure of, of opening two facilities, one assisted living and one skilled nursing. So I can describe the process for both. The assisted living piece, there's much less regulatory oversight. To get an assisted living license in Massachusetts, it's not a great challenge. What was a challenge, we decided that we were going to attach this particular assisted living to an existing skilled nursing facility. We did so because we knew we could create some efficiencies, dietary service, for example, oversight. But in doing so, we had to get DPH approval to allow for this addition to the existing skilled nursing facility. So it was a, it was a lot of municipal work, you know, getting the town to accept what you wanted to do. We were already working off of a special variance because we were a story higher than we should have been within this residential environment. So yeah, it was, it was a lot of work on the municipal level, on the state level, talking to the neighborhood, making sure that the neighbors were going to be okay with additional parking and traffic flow and yeah, there's a lot that goes into and then after you get your approvals and construction begins there's oversight and monitoring of the construction crew to make sure that your operation in the skilled nursing facility continues to be successful with minimal interruption so we had weekly job meetings it was, it was a lot of work, but once we finally got it open, of course, then the owners want you to fill it, you know, the next day, which is not, not an easy process. It took us a while to get it up and running and to be successful. I mean, the other part of it is you've got to develop budgets and pro formas around how much you're paying for this building, at what point, and then how are you going to staff it, and then at what point do you break even, and then at what point do you start making money? So we projected, we did a three-year pro forma, hoping by year three that we would be a successful operation. We hit that target. We beat it by a little bit. But it's, it's anxious moments for the primary owners who have outlaid a significant amount of money to make this you know, project successful. So I've had an executive director for a assisted living facility on the program previously, but can you briefly explain the difference between, well, maybe explain what these two categories are? skilled nursing and assisted living. What are they and how are they different? Sure. So assisted living is primarily paid for by private funds. Long-term care insurance is some of those would pay for it as well, though I don't, I don't see a lot of long-term care insurance, period. Uh, it's an expensive product and, and unfortunately a lot of people don't take advantage of it. So mostly it's private pay. Some assisted living facilities in Massachusetts do take some Medicaid patients through the group adult foster care program. We opted not to do that uh, because, again, it was a small boutique assisted living. It was only 29 apartments. 
our pro formas couldn't support public funding. We needed to charge private funds to get this thing to work. So that's one significant difference. And in the nursing facility, you can, you know, the, the payer sources are, there, there are multiple payer sources, private funds, Medicaid, private insurance, me managed care, long-term care insurance, multiple methods of payment. So that's, that's one difference. The other difference is just the level of care provided. In Massachusetts, you're not supposed to provide direct care for ADLs, for medication. You're not, people are supposed to be relatively independent. The services are supposed to be you know, more social, dietary service, oversight, housekeeping, a safe and secure environment, but not necessarily taking care of people. People do get cared for in assisted livings via outside agencies. We're not allowed to do that ourselves. Okay. Now, I will tell you, Mark, that's evolved as well. And I don't want to call people cheaters, <laughs> but an assisted living today looks an awful lot like a nursing facility did for me back when I started my career. Okay. And so people are receiving care, but they're not, they're not supposed to by our own staff. In the skilled nursing facility, we're providing all sorts of care. We're, we're dispensing medications, we're inserting IVs, we're monitoring IVs, we're, we're getting people up, uh, we're, we're bathing them, we're, we're feeding them. Uh, it's very hands-on. Physician services are, are, are you know, we, we work with our doctors frequently in the nursing facility. They have to approve all of the care that's provided. It's a much more intensive care environment than an assisted living. So you were the director of operations from 2003 to 2009 with Radius and then the vice president of operations from 2009 to 2013. What was the change in role? So I, I moved up from sort of sharing responsibilities with another individual to overseeing the entire operation. Okay. So it, it went from having a select group of facilities to having... The whole, the whole thing. And did you have subordinate directors that oversaw portions of? The... I I did. Okay. I did. So it was just another step up in my in my career. Uh, what was the primary difference? I, I realize it was scope, but I mean, in your day to day operations, how did your how did your responsibilities change? That particular change, there wasn't a, a lot of responsibility ch uh, change. I would say it was other than scope. And the reason that it happened is I had I was toying with the notion of leaving Radius. They very much did not want me to leave, and so gave me a a new title, some additional responsibility, and adjusted my compensation because of it. So it was it was really driven by me thinking about leaving. That's a reasonable thing to do with a, an employee that you appreciate. Sure. So what was your relationship with management for Radius? So who else was kind of at your level in the organization, and, and how did you interact with them? On my level, would, you know, was myself, the CFO, the accounts payables manager, the accounts receivables manager. So it was a, a group of four or five of us. And, you know, we were very much colleagues and friends. And as a matter of fact, the organization that I'm with right now consists mostly of Radius folks that I worked with for a number of years. We worked extremely well together. I, I would say 
our CFO and, and myself, we're, the, we're, we're very tight. We're friends. We're tough on each other when we need to be. I keep him in check. He keeps me in check. He's more conservative. Um, I'm a little bit more interested in growing the business and uh, being a little bit more creative. And he's, he makes sure that I don't spend too much money. We've, you know, so we've got a great relationship. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm really blessed that my nine years at Radius have created relationships that exist to this day. And I'm working with those folks now. So in 2013, you decided to leave Radius. And, and, and you came to Alliance Health Management Services to be the chief operating officer, which is the role you hold today. How did that transition go about? So Radius decided that they wanted to sell their organization. And one of the principal owners was nearing retirement age. They selected a company called Athena Healthcare Systems. And I was involved with about a six or seven month transition to make sure things went smoothly from Radius to Athena. Then left Athena and got together with the CFO from Radius and decided that we wanted to work together and develop our own company. And we started looking at nursing facilities to purchase. And ultimately, we decided that we wanted to start our own management company. We wanted to start managing nursing facilities for other providers uh, within uh, Massachusetts. So. We approached a not-for-profit entity who we had a previous relationship with. Uh, Radius managed one of this not-for-profit entity's nursing facilities. So we knew the uh, CEO and the CFO at this not-for-profit. We approached them and said, we would, we're going to start our own management company. We would like to manage your nursing facilities. We knew that one of their contracts was coming up. So we thought the timing was right. And if we could get one entity, it would kick us off into being able to grow a company. Uh, and we thought a very, a relatively short period of time. So you, you had decided against actually putting up the capital to purchase and you wanted to move into management. Correct. Okay. Correct. And that's really, that's how Radius started. So when Radius started, they were a management entity. They didn't own anything. And so we, you know, we just wanted to duplicate that model. In our in in a, in, a, in our setting, uh, in our company, and we approached this organization, and su- surprisingly, they said to us, "Well, we're thinking about self-managing our properties." At the time, they had farmed out the management of their skilled nursing facilities to three different organizations, including Radius, and they had come to the a decision that they wanted to self-manage and start their own management company. So we're pitching them, our management company. They're saying, well, wait, we want to start our own. And oh, by the way, do you guys want to run it? Oh. And that's where Alliance Health Management Services was created. Okay. And we started out with uh, one facility and have now grown to four. And we've got a few other facilities on the uh, on the horizon to take over in 2017. So we're likely going to grow to six or seven by the end of 17, and you know we're excited about it. So the organization you were referring to earlier is that Alliance Health Incorporated. It is okay, and that's a not for profit. That is a not for profit, and unlike my experience at Bourne Manor, I am involved with the board of Alliance. 
I was just recently named clerk of the entire organization, so not just the skilled nursing facility portfolio, but we also have, we provide foster care in California, Virginia, Illinois, and Rhode Island. And, you know, so that segment of the business prior to this past year, I had not been involved with, but now I am. What is the, so that's interesting. What is the business model for foster care? So I'm just getting my arms around it, but I can, I can give you some details. We get paid a fee generally by a municipality for identifying foster parents, a foster home, training them, and ultimately assisting with the placement of a child into that home. And that's how we get reimbursed. The model for Alliance has been and continues to be to, to provide care for the most needy children that are out there. Many of them have been involved with the juvenile justice system. Many of them you know, have, have some form of illness or uh, behavioral disorder, challenging kids, uh, hard-to-place kids. That's, that's the space that we're working in. So your your responsibilities are now as in your managerial role are going to include those aspects of the organization as well. Sure, it's evolving, but at this point, my involvement has been to create some synergies between Alliance Health Management Services that's strictly working with our nursing facilities and Alliance Health and Human Services, which is the foster care section, and bringing people together. So our human resources person at Alliance Health Management Services is now working with Alliance Health and Human Services. Our clinical director is now working with Alliance Health and Human Services. So we're bringing the two entities that were working in silos before I got involved, we're bringing them together. So that's been my first initial charge, Um, but I'm not overseeing the operations of the foster care division. at this point, just bringing people together. Okay. So as the chief operating officer for Alliance Health Management Services, what are, what are your responsibilities for the organization? I consider myself and, and my business partner, uh, Paul Kemp, he's our CFO, I consider the two of us the two leaders of the organization. And I think, I don't think, I know that everybody else feels the same way, including the folks that oversee the parent organization, Alliance Health Inc., so we work in a very autonomous way, uh, running the day-to-day operations of our skilled nursing facilities. But unlike my experience at Radius, I'm also charged with growing the organization. So we're looking at adding uh, additional nursing facilities. We're looking to get into the assisted living space. We've recently reached out to some folks to start our own hospice program. We're looking to get into the home health care space. These are all issues that we brought before our, before our board who very much want to see us expand our footprint in healthcare in Massachusetts. So that's the big difference, that I'm, I'm charged with growing the organization. Oh, that's exciting. It is. It is. Where are your facilities? You said you, you manage how many? So you manage six or seven, I think you said? So we currently manage four of the seven 
Alliance-owned facilities. Okay. And the four that we that we manage, one is located in Brockton. We've got one in Quincy, Braintree, and one out in Baldwinville, Mass., which is northwest of Worcester, about nine miles from the New Hampshire border. It's it's very much a out on its own yeah. standalone it's west facility. Of Worcester, so. Right, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Who knows what's out there? Exactly. <laughs> the, the The remaining three are managed by Bain, Bain Care. Okay. And they're on they're they're on the North Shore. They've got existing contracts. Bain Care has an existing contract with Alliance that'll eventually ex, you know expire, and we hope to be able to manage those at some point as well. And when you say you're looking to expand, are you looking to acquire additional homes or facilities for Alliance, or are you looking to just extend the management services, or is it a mix of both? Both. Okay. Um, I think our preference would be to to acquire existing facilities. The Baldwinville facility is is a real interesting one. It was a standalone, not for profit. There are a few of those in Massachusetts. Not many left, but this was a standalone not-for-profit, and they weren't doing well financially. And they approached us, their board approached us, and said, you know, can you help us out? We're thinking about closing. We don't know what to do. We've got to figure out a way to, to make this entity viable again. So ultimately, we ended up acquiring the facility, but it wasn't a purchase. It was just an assumption of the existing entity into our board. Okay. So the only fees associated with that deal were the legal fees and you know there wasn't any additional debt taken on. It was a it was a great deal. So ideally we'd love to find other standalone not for profits that might need some help. So you're also but you're also exploring extensions of of the organization into other related areas. So you don't currently have assisted living, you said? We don't. And you're, so you're looking at that, you're looking at home, home health care. And hospice. And hospice. Do you see purchasing an existing organization or merging with an existing organization? Or do you imagine uh, starting from scratch? So there's a, a moratorium on starting your own certified home care agencies. So that's not going to happen. We'd have to acquire one. And yeah, we've looked at a few. Thus far, what we've looked at is just too big for what we are right now. And none of us within our organization have any home health care experience. So it's going to be an interesting endeavor. But we've got to do it, Mark, because in my, you know, we're discharging from our Quincy and Braintree facilities. We're discharging, just to use, you know, rough numbers, 100 patients back into the community on a monthly basis. Okay. About half of them are involved with uh, an ACO who have their own preferred home care agencies. So we can't touch half of them, but the other half we're just giving the business away. And from my perspective, we can control quality and we certainly, you know, eventually can make a profit if we do it right and take, it, and take better care of people. So I think it's a no-brainer that we want to get into the home care space. We've just got to find the right, the right organization that fits with us. On the hospice front, there is not a moratorium. We can start from scratch if we want to. We're exploring that opportunity now. We're also exploring buying an existing hospice. We have routinely in our facilities 10 to 15 patients who are receiving hospice services on a daily basis. 
we've got contracts with three, four, five providers in each of our facilities. So there's no real continuity of care. And it's a space that can be profitable. And I use the term profit a lot, even though we're not for profit. We run it very much like back in the radius days. We, we expect to make our budgets, to exceed our budgets. You know, the big difference is that at the end of the year, or if it ever gets sold, uh, no one cashes out. Right. It, it, it goes back into the organization. But it's, it's I think, you know, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a nice model and we're taking good care of people and that's the most important thing. You mentioned the ACO and I was interested in hearing your thoughts on that. So you said, so two things on this. One is earlier in our conversation, you were talking about li- back, back in the Liberty days. Right. You didn't discharge a lot of people. You said no. people came there and that was kind of where they were going to end their right. days. Right. Now that's not true so much anymore, right? For Correct. A lot of the business for skilled nursing is in and out. The majority of our patients that come to us end up getting discharged back to the community, the vast majority. So how did that change the business model? How did that change the nature of, of the business that you did? Boy, it, uh, it changed it significantly. It, back when I started at Liberty Commons, a good portion, a substantial portion of the facility were private paying individuals. And, you know, when, they, when their resources ran out, they were eligible for Medicaid. And Medicaid, when I first started, wasn't the end of the world. But as the years have gone on, unfortunately, we've either had our Medicaid rates frozen at a certain level, or we've had very small increases. To make a long story short, we lose money now every day on our Medicaid patients. And that's just not in my organization. That's throughout Massachusetts. I happen to be on the board at Mass Senior Care. So I've got a, I've got an intimate knowledge of how Medicaid is a losing proposition, unfortunately. Is Mass Senior Care Medicaid for senior? So Mass Senior Care is the organization that all, not all, most facilities in Massachusetts pay a fee to. They, they're our oversight group. They're the group that lobbies for us and at the state house. They're the group that helps oversee, you know, everything that we do. It's, it's a voluntary. So it's an advocacy organization. It is. Okay. It is. It is. And so, so Medicaid is a losing proposition. We figured out somewhere in the mid nineties, I guess it was, that Medicare was a winning proposition and we got very heavily involved, all nursing facilities, in doing short-term rehabilitation. So it really has shifted from private pay Medicaid to Medicare and in many ways Medicare has subsidized the Medicaid program. Most of, of your patients or residents today are not long-term care residents. Is that true? Well, no, that's a, that's a tough. Most of our admissions are okay. not long-term. But I would say the majority of the patients in our facilities are long-term. I know that might sound confusing, okay. no, no, but... <laughs> I, get, I get what you're saying. Okay, I, I, okay. I, I've talked to other uh, homes where that's where they have a... A greater portion of their beds are, are short term. Right. Um, okay. 
you, you mentioned ACOs, so I'm really interested in hearing right. how the ACOs, and what it sounds like is they're influencing the, the, the practice. They're influencing the flow of discharges and Abs- people go. Absolutely. Baldwinville, that little facility out west, doesn't ha- they're not involved with any ACOs. They're, they've got one primary feeding hospital, Haywood Memorial Hospital, and that's it. But our other three are heavily involved with ACOs. At Braintree, we've got preferred relationships with Atrius ACO, Bidco, Partners, the same at Marina Bay. At West Acres in Brockton, we, we are involved with Stewart ACO. And really what's, what's, what's happened with these ACOs is they are, they're setting expectations for, for length of stay and for the cost of care that is really made it made it difficult for us in terms of you know we've so for instance on length of stay they've they their their expectation is 10 days or less now that's a huge difference between our traditional medicare patients and they actually send in case managers from their acos uh, to monitor and to uh, to participate in our care plan meetings and to really push and drive this the discharge process Um, so yeah that's changed things substantially in the steward ACO model, that's the most uh, interesting one of all that we work with. They actually, to be in their network, you have to agree to give back 10% of your Medicare revenues per patient. So, and there's no choice. You either do that or you're not in the network. And if you're not in the network, that means you're going to, you, you, you run the risk of losing admissions. And so we are involved with them in two of our facilities and... It's a, it's, it's a tough deal. We're not making it up in volume, unfortunately, which is what we thought we would going into it. We thought that with all of these organizations. I don't really believe that's been the case. So you're not actually part of the ACO. You're contracting with the ACO. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Okay. So that's, they're almost like another layer of managed care then. Is that? They are. It's, it's more intense though. Okay. And, and like I said, the expectation is shorter length of stay. It, it's, Taking care of people better, but cheaper. That's really the, the, the mantra, if you will. So they now have an interest in that. So that uh, an ACO is an accountable care organization. And so the model here is a shared savings model where the ACO makes, makes money from Medicare if they're able to reduce the cost. Sure. So that's why they're pressure, pressuring the, the skilled nursing facilities to reduce right. costs. Right. Exactly. They're incentivized to to drive down the cost of care per patient for Medicare patients. And so that means they push us to make sure that, that, that we're doing things efficiently as well. So then you're looking at what we call vertical integration further into the stream to acquire a home health agency that so as the discharge from the skilled nursing facility happens, right. it could still stay in your organization just to a different portion of the organization. So you could go from the from a Alliance skilled nursing facility to a Alliance home health care facility if you well not a facility but Alliance home health care care. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. That's the that's the that's the notion. That's the idea. Yeah, because like we're get, we're giving away that care right now. Okay. Interesting. And is that a profitable business line? Um, so the numbers that I've looked at from various agencies, the short, the short answer is it can be. 
it's all about volume and, and we've got the volume. We've got the patience to, to take care of. So, yeah, I think we can make it work. What is the competition for residents or patients in this area? So we're in, we're in um, eastern Massachusetts. It's, heavily, it's a densely populated area. Lots of, lots of hospitals. I imagine lots of nursing homes. So there, it, the competition must be somewhat, somewhat fierce. It is. It's very challenging. You know, again, back when I started, hospitals would fax us a referral and we'd make the decision based on some pieces of paper and admit a patient and there wasn't a, a lot of heavy lifting. Now, we've evolved into having screeners, uh, multiple screeners that visit these hospitals on a regular basis, market and fight for patients. It's It's been an interesting transition. Typically, these Screeners are registered nurses who are very polished, both clinically and in presentation. They're really marketers for us. Uh, so we've had to spend significant dollars on bringing in these new positions to fight for referrals. Uh, it's, it's a very competitive business. So the means whereby people come to your facilities are uh, discharges from, from a hospital after some sort of procedure, I would assume but also perhaps from the home. Is that yeah. the case? Yeah, we still get direct admits from, from the home. I would say the vast majority, though, go to the hospital first before okay. they come to us. Okay. I think that's for a couple of reasons. One, there's so much. Home care has really taken off, and I think, I think intentionally through Obamacare. But I, you know, I, I think as, as proud as I am of our nursing facilities, I, I don't have any hesitation in saying there is no place like home. And I think, and I think folks want to stay home as long as they can. So I think it takes a significant event for them to end up with us. You know, so typically that means going to the hospital first. But yeah, we get a fair amount of, of direct admits from home. You've spent 25 years in the long-term care industry now. What makes a good nursing home or long-term care facility? If you walk in and you, let's say you're evaluating to purchase right. one and you walk in, what are you looking for? Great question. A physical plant is important. I think, you know, when I tour a facility and I expect this of my facilities, I expect them to be clean. I expect them to be you know, odor free. I expect them to, I expect the staff to be pleasant and outgoing and inviting. You know, it doesn't have to be the newest facility on the block because there's a, you know, we have a variety of homes. We've got some facilities that are just gorgeous when you walk into, and we've got some that are more, more homey. But it's really all about the staff. At the end of the day, that's the most important thing, the, the quality and quantity of staff. When facilities are having challenges financially, often the only place to make changes that will influence the bottom line is is in labor. So th I want to know that the staff are well cared for, that there's a sufficient number of them, and that they that they care about what they're doing. That's the most important thing. What makes a good nursing home administrator? All right, somebody that's outgoing, has a passion for the business, and likes people. You, 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 you can't be... I don't think people that are reserved are meant for this line of work. You've got to be outgoing. You, it's, a, it's a people business more than anything else. 
most organizations are going to be able to provide you with the financial assistance that you need, the, you know, the, the back door accounting, if you will. That's a, that's an important strength, but it's not the most important. You've, you've, you've really got to enjoy working with people and, and, and dealing with people. That's the most important thing. How has the industry changed? Well, as I said, it used to be a place where uh, folks came to, you know, to, to live out the, the remaining days of their life. Now, it's I think of of it, they're rehabilitation centers, and and most most nursing facilities have changed their names to skilled at the end skilled nursing and rehab center, because that's really what we are. The skill set of the nursing staff has has been enhanced greatly over the years, and it's had to. There were no IVs when I started, no IVs in nursing facilities when I started, or very few. Um, now it's it's a common practice to even start our own IVs. So we're taking care of, of much sicker, much more challenging patients than we ever did before. And with that, we've had to increase you know, our costs, uh, particularly our labor costs. So yeah, it's, it's evolved and changed quite a bit. It, it feels like a hospital setting in some cases. There's been a lot of consolidation. Uh, you mentioned Athena. I believe you said Athena is the, the dominant. They're a big player in Massachusetts. Big player in Massachusetts. I know Genesis owns much of the many of the facilities in New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah there's Life Care. There's a, there's there's some very big organizations out there. What are your long-term concerns from a strategic perspective? Where do you see the industry going in the next five to ten years? We're going to be a very big player in the healthcare space. I have no doubt about that. Uh, the need is going to continue to grow. The aged population is going to continue to grow. So there's always going to be a need for us. I think the drive for home care and assisted livings have been, I think, the two greatest challenges to the skilled nursing facility sector. Virtually all of our private pay census is dis- dissipated, and they're all in assisted livings. And and I don't blame them if you. If you have the resources and the means to, to go into an assisted living, they typically are newer, more attractive physical plants, and I, and I can understand why people would choose that uh, direction. But in home care, like, there's no place like home. So those two, those two sectors have really challenged us, and that's, that's, our biggest, that's our biggest challenge as we move forward. I just want to ask a few questions about leadership and we'll yeah. wrap up on. What would you say is your leadership philosophy? So leaders have to set the tone and the example and create expectations. And, and in order to do that, you've got to be willing to be out there and engaged with folks. You know, when, I, when I first started in the business, the owner of Liberty Commons typically started his work day at 6 o'clock in the morning and typically didn't leave until 6 in the afternoon or evening, I should say. And so I said, boy, if I'm going to be a part of this organization, I better be an early, early riser and I better be willing to put in long hours. And I did. So whatever, whatever you expect out of your employees, you better be doing it yourself. I think that the best leaders are consistent, predictable. Employees need to know what their leader, what they can expect out of their, out of their leader on a daily basis. And you've got to be consistent with people. What do you look for when you're hiring a leader? So you've been a, a leader of leaders for a long time. I have, and I, I love interviewing folks. Um, I, I love the interview process. I love sitting down with people, particularly younger people. I, I want to make a quick pitch for our industry. Um, 
the University of New Hampshire's program is fantastic, and 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 I didn't pay him to say that. <laughs> and I and I going back to the ag- advocacy organization, Mass Senior Care, where I am a board member. I've said to the board very recently, you know, my son's at UNH. He he loves the program. Why don't the state schools in Massachusetts have that program? You know, the the industry can be stale at times. Sometimes I interview folks that. I've seen two years ago that circulate from one nursing facility to another. We've not done a good job in Massachusetts of getting the word out about how special, important, and fulfilling this business can be. And I think it starts at the college level. When I interview young people, I get a kick out of it. I, you know, why why are they interested in joining my sector? And I'm looking for people that are outgoing and are energetic and have a passion, are willing to learn. It's, it's a very challenging profession. It's, uh, you've got the regulatory component, you've got the financial component, you've got all the social issues that you've got to deal with, you've got the personnel, you've got the fear of unionization, you've got all these things that are out there, and you, you, you can't figure them out right away. It takes time. It's the kind of job that you really have to do it for a number of years to become proficient in it. But the University of New Hampshire is preparing young folks to, to be in this business, and I'm appreciative of it. We need to do a better job in Massachusetts. What is organizational culture, and why is it important? And what aspects of organizational culture are particularly important to you? So hard, hard work and, um, you know, there's no shortcuts uh, to, to, to getting the job done. You've got to, you've got to put in the time. You've got to, so the culture that I've tried to create, and I think I've been successful in creating, is one where I expect my managers on the corporate level to provide support to the facilities. It's not that the facilities are reporting to my corporate team. We're there for them. We're there to provide assistance and support. So, you know, the, so, so the culture that I've tried to create is one that you know, people work hard, people care about what they're doing. It's all about outcomes. In the not-for-profit world, our board is not as concerned with the bottom line as they are about being associated with facilities that take good care of people. And so the culture that we're creating in this, in this new company, relatively new company, we're three years old now, is let's take good care of people, let's have good outcomes, and we're gonna be successful financially if we do that. So, you know, our mission is quality, quality, quality. That's what my board cares about, and I'm in sync with that. One of the areas that I'm interested in from a research perspective is mentorship. So I wanted to ask just a couple quick questions about sure. that. Did you have a mentor or mentors early in your career? I did. And how did those people help you? So the person who was my preceptor for my administrator and training program was and continues to be a mentor for me. He is the chairman of the board at Mass Senior Care, and he's the reason that I'm on the board. He asked me to be. And with any luck, he's going to be the preceptor for my son if I can convince him to join this, uh, this industry. He... He was a guy that, again, showed up early for work, stayed late. It was important for him to get to know the patients, the families, the staff. We had regular social events with our, with our employees. 
He didn't look at that as a burden or an inconvenience. It was something that he enjoyed doing. He's just, he's a, he's a super guy and dedicated to the profession, cares about people, and has always run a top notch organization. And, and, you know, I strive to, to, to be like him and to create something that he's created. What would you say good mentors do if you kind of, if you wanted to define the, the job description? What does that, what does that include? So it, it includes, you know, being there for people. I could pick up the phone and, and, and call this, uh, this individual anytime, ask any question, and, and, and he'd be there for me. He'd be supportive of me. And I think he's always set an appropriate expectation. Um, he's, he's a consistent guy. He doesn't always have all of the answers, but if he doesn't, he, he, he's, he's connected enough that he can find them for me. I think a mentor genuinely cares about about the in, individual that you know they're mentoring, and and I've done a few of them myself. I've had a few. Uh, I wanted to ask you if you have you been a mentor. I have. I've had a couple of administrators in training. Uh, one still in the field, another is not. Uh, one took it more seriously than than the other. Um, I fulfilled both of the commitments, the six-month commitments, even though I thought one of them really wasn't into it. It's hard to change behavior or what's inside of somebody. But I I enjoyed the process. I like to think that at least the one person who's still in the field, um, she reaches out to me on occasion, and I I like to think that I'm still there for her. So there are terrific experiences. And the other nice outcome of being a preceptor for an administrator and training program is that you get continuing education uh, credits for doing so. To, to maintain your Massachusetts nursing home license, you need a minimum of 40 CEUs on a, an annual basis. So you get, I think, 20 for being a preceptor. So that's, that's another that's nice. benefit of doing <laughs> it. Right. So speaking of, of certifications, how important are professional associations for your development and for the field? So we are required, as I said, to to get continuing education uh, credits on an on an annual basis. And the American College of Healthcare Administrators is an entity that I think is important to be a part of. First of all, I'm on their board as well in Massachusetts. They are education focused. They're all about enhancing the skill set of specifically of administrators. Um, so they're an important group, and you can become a certified nursing home administrator, which I happen to be, That allow, through the American College of Healthcare Administrators, and that allows in some states for you to get a license without having to retake the test, for instance. So I was, I was licensed in Massachusetts, but because of my CNHA certification, I was able to get my Rhode Island license when I opened up a facility down in Rhode Island for RADIUS. So... There, there are benefits there. The other benefits are just you make connections. You know, there are regular meetings and outings, and it's a great way to make connections within within the business because you never know where you're going to land. So maybe you can make one last pitch here uh, for a young person thinking about a career in health. Why should they think about long-term care rather than, say, uh, an acute care facility? Sure. It's a, it's, it's a segment of healthcare that's going to be in existence for a long time. There are many more skilled nursing facilities 
in New England and throughout the country than there are hospitals. I mean, there, I think, just think there's greater opportunity. And it's, it's a worthwhile profession. If you're a hospital CEO, I, I doubt that you have the opportunity to interact with patients and families in an intimate way as you can as, a, as an administrator. And it's powerful stuff. So I, I, I just think the personal aspect of getting to know folks and working directly with folks it's in, in a much more intimate way, in a much more intimate setting, makes us a segment that it's worthwhile to explore. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been really educational. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.